with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having, drawn, having a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word again, as always, the beauty, the power, the majesty of it, the, the subtlety of it, how it cuts us into pieces and then remakes us, how you break us and bind us up, Lord. We pray that as we study this today that we would see, Lord, your power. We, say, we pray we would see how you use that power to protect us. And we pray that you would help us to see how we should rightly respond to all that. And so, Lord, give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you, according to your promise, beautify your afflicted ones. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we're turning a huge corner here today. Up until uh, this part, we've been in a section of John's Gospel called The Last Discourse. It's Jesus' training session. It was it, the last, during the Last Supper, he knew that he would be dead in 24 hours, and so it was his last opportunity to, to, to teach the disciples the most important things, to help them come online better with what was happening and to pray for them. And now that's over. We have turned a corner, and we are now in the drama of the passion of the Christ. Passion is a word not like we use it. Passion is a Latin word that means suffering or uh, enduring. And so we are in now the beginning stages of the, uh, the capstone of all the Gospels, including John's, the passion or the suffering of the Christ on our behalf. So the other Gospels, if you know, if you're familiar with the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all hit this from a certain perspective where they are coming at it uh, in the sense of, um, Jesus hum- of, of Jesus' humanity and how Jesus is wrestling with the fact that his hour, the hour that he so often talk about is finally here and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is wrestling with the Father over the Father's will for him in his humanity and, and submitting himself to the will of the Father on our behalf even unto death, is what the Bible says. Uh, and, uh, you know, being full aware of what was going to happen to him, right? 
And not just the cross. The cross was the physical, really, picture of the emotional and spiritual suffering that Christ was going to go through uh, that we couldn't see, that we can't understand. He, who had been in perfect union and fellowship with the Father for all time, was about to become sin for the world. He was about to become and take upon himself the full wrath of the Father poured out upon him, which he had never experienced anything like that. And so the other Gospels, they talk about the aspect of Jesus' humanity. But when we come to John, John is different. John knows that the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have been in circulation for decades And so he wants to, as John often does, he wants to fill in the picture for us. He wants to fill in the blanks and teach us more things about what was going on, to say new things to us. Uh, And here, so like always, John is focused, when he does this, through the whole gospel, he has been focused on the eternal reality of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the glory of the cross, which was God in and through Jesus exercising his authority over all mankind, not, in, in, the, in, in, not in, in the power of violence and the power of coercion, but in, in the undefeatable, unimaginable power, the heavenly power of love. And love as God understands it, not how we understand it, not love as what makes me feel good, but love as what is the ultimate good for the flourishing of people at a great cost to self. And so John is different. That's why I love John. One of the reasons I wanted to do John as a book for our church first is he's always, he's always peeling back the curtain and showing us this view from behind the scenes of eternity in view with the whole gospel story. And so John here is intent on one thing and one thing only, and that is to show us that this event, which to the disciples must have looked like total tragedy. Their leader, the man that they loved, they thought that all their hopes were were hanging upon this man was being arrested. That must have seemed like the most awful thing in all the world to them, and yet... John wants us to know, Jesus wants us to know. He gives us a little peek behind the curtain so that we would know for sure that as awful as this looks, in the very midst of it, we would know that everything was happening right on schedule. Everything was in total control of God. And so the big idea, thesis of this passage The one thing that Jesus wants us to know more than anything is that because the power of God always protects us, we can live our lives in service of the gospel. Let me say that one more time. Because the power of God always protects us, we can live our lives in the service of the gospel. Let's break that down one piece at a time. Look at verses three through six. Now let me set this up. I'm just going to start at three. So Jesus has gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the place they always go when they're in Jerusalem. They often spent the night there out in the open. And so Judas knows well where Jesus is going to be. And Jesus has gone there on purpose. And so with that, 
uh, they go to the garden, starting at verse 3. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now that's kind of impressive, wouldn't you say? Uh, But there's more to the story. Let me set the stage and remind us of the background of where we're at in the story. Remember we talked a few weeks ago when we talked about the triumphal entry. Jesus had literally came in with throngs and throngs of supporters and taken over the Temple Mount. We called it Occupy Jerusalem. He set up shop in the Temple Mount and began to teach and, began the, uh, and, 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 and healed all of everybody that was in the temple, literally brought people into the temple, healed them, and his followers, including the children, were running around almost in mass hysteria, shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna to God in the highest. It was, almost, it was worship pandemonium on the Temple Mount with how many, who knows how many thousands of people. That's what had just happened. The, the authorities earlier had already tried to send the temple police to go to arrest Jesus. They came back empty-handed saying, hey man, nobody's ever spoke like this guy, and so they let him go. They didn't finish their job. Uh, And so the religious elites had already tried to arrest him and were unable to. And so the thing is, this looks to them, to the Sadducees, to the Pharisees, to the Sanhedrin, to the Jerusalem ruling religious elite, this looks every bit like the beginnings of religious political insurrection. Uh, And they are seriously concerned that they are all about to be deposed. So they're afraid. Make no mistake. So now, uh, and that explains, so that explains Judas for one, right? I always thought, why didn't they just arrest him in the temple? He's always there every day. But the reality was they needed Judas They needed a guide because they couldn't approach him in the temple. They had to find him in his secret lair, as it were, and ambush him by surprise to take him. And so they needed an inside man who would be able to identify him. They didn't have IDs. You couldn't whip out your driver's license. They needed someone who could positively ID Jesus. That was the need, the need for Judas. And so now with all that background, I can explain to you what just happened. Now, popular misconception. One of the other gospels says that a crowd came with swords and clubs and lanterns and it kind of gives you this picture of this ragtag vigilante posse kind of rolling up from Jerusalem to take Jesus. 20 guys, 15, 20 guys, uh, some clubs, whatever they could grab out of the barn, a pitchfork, a lantern, and they're coming up and they're gonna take Jesus, right? But the reality, the reality is when John says that Judas procured or was given a band of soldiers, that is a technical military term. It's the word cohort, which was a technical Roman designation for what we would call a battalion, for those of you who are familiar with the military. A cohort was one-tenth of a legion, 
The cohort was made up of six centuries, each led by a centurion, each one about 80 guys. So in other words, a cohort was 600 Roman soldiers. And, um, so, you know, you, you, you know a little bit about Roman soldiers, right? Romans, the, the, uh, 50% of Roman soldiers ne- did not live to the end of their enlistment because the, the, the fighting that they were engaged in throughout their lifetimes were so brutal, half of them died. People did it because if you lived, it was very lucrative, but half Roman soldiers died. So they had seen everything. They were in action all the time. Uh, most likely, this was a cohort called the Second Italian Cohort because there were six cohorts in Jerusalem at that time. Five of them were made up heavily of recruits of Sumerians who were the enemies of the Jews, and that would have been really difficult for the Jews to work together with a Sumerian cohort. So almost certainly, this is called the Second Italian Cohort. Now, Bible trivia question for you Bible geeks. Who's the most famous person that we know of from the second Italian cohort? Anybody? Answer? Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. If he was here, you think this made an impression upon him? Some commentators try to downplay this reality, and saying that, that there's too many guys. There's, why would they send a cohort? They say, well, the Jews and the, and the Romans, would, would, they would never um, collaborate together, which is this, the dumbest argument I've ever heard because the whole book is about the collaboration of the Jews and the Romans together to take, take out Jesus, right? Not only that, but uh, the temple police are mentioned separately a band of soldiers, a cohort, and officers from the the Sanhedrin. Uh, The temple police carried batons, clubs. The soldiers carried swords. Other disciple, other gospel says Jesus was handed over to the hands of sinners, which is Gentiles. It all lines up, and if that left you with any doubt whatsoever, the captain that he's talking, the captain of this troop is another technical word that means tribune, which was the captain or the, the military leader of a cohort, a thousand men, or 600 men, 600 to 800 men. Any way you slice it, you can't get around it. Any way you slice it, when you think of all that, you understand that they occupy Jerusalem, you understand the real threat of insurrection, you understand that they had no idea what they were coming up against, You understand that the chief priests and the Pharisees and the elders of the people were also there with them and they were not going to take any chances. It is unmistakable that it was a full Roman cohort with its tribune at the head who came to arrest Jesus that night. 600, battle-hardened, seen everything, been everywhere, not afraid of nothing, Roman infantry soldiers. Now, let's revisit the scene one more time from verse 4 and then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him came forward and approached the cohort of Roman soldiers and said to them whom do you seek and the tribune answered Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus said to them I am he Judas was with them just so in case we're wondering what side Judas is on, 
And when Judas said to them, I am he, 600 battle-hardened Roman soldiers drew back and fell to the ground. Now, you know why this is my favorite passage? Here's the thing. Who can tell me what Jesus actually said to them? In the Greek, uh, we, the Greek, we translate that as I am he, but in the Greek, what it says is I am. In other words, it's another instance of Jesus. I am is the memorial name of God. It's the sacred memorial covenant name of God, God's revelation of himself to the Israelites, to the world as I am, self-existent power. And Jesus, for just a second, pulls the veil back and reveals his divine glory and he speaks into existence the divine name and the power of God face plants an entire Roman cohort of soldiers. Sick. You know the story of, of, of Elisha and his servant? They're, they're surrounded by the army. And Elisha prays for his servant and says, open my servant's eyes so he can see what's up. And he opens his eyes and he sees flaming chariots and horsemen all around them, totally outnumbering the army. And he goes, hey, we're good. <laughs> That's what this is. This is purposefully put here. Jesus put this here. The Holy Spirit reminded John of this to tell us so that we would see this. He's talking about us, his people. So we would know, hey, no matter what it looks like, we're good. This is the power we have behind us. That was an impossible situation, wasn't it? And yet Jesus wanted us to know that no matter how impossible our situation may look, no matter how bad it may look to you, to us, in life, I mean, things could be told, I don't know, some, some of us, things are totally falling apart. There's lots, we have insecurity. I don't know what's gonna happen next week. How am I gonna, what kind of job am I gonna get? What, uh, you know, how am I going to take care of my family? Is my relationship going to crumble? Is this really happening? And the temptation is to think, you're on your own. What the reality is, what God wants us to know that that is the power that we have behind us, surrounding us at all times. That God is always present with us. Now, So that was point one, power of God. Point two, power of God always protects us. Let me read verse seven and eight. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. And so just when you think it can't get any better, Jesus has just face-planted an entire Roman cohort of soldiers. Uh, He follows up on that by, um, (laughs) he follows up on that by giving them orders, essentially. (laughs) Notice, he's the only one giving commands in this story. They show up. Who do you seek? Who do you seek? 
let these men go, issuing commands to these guys. Uh, and let's think about that. He is, he is issuing a formal imperative command. If you seek me, let these men go. What are the chances that a Roman tribune on orders is going, an impartial Roman tribune, is going to let go all the co-conspirators that he's been sent out to arrest? What do you think the chances of that are? And if that's not bad enough, what are the chances of him letting everybody go after one of them physically assaults this high official with a sword in an attempted murder? The answer, less than zero. They had no intention of letting those men go, especially after Peter tried to kill the servant of the high priest. And so when Jesus here says to them, let these men go, that is flexing divine power, not just as a show, but as protection over his people. He is protecting them. He is protecting us. And this is divine word. We know how because it's treated as prophetic, as prophecy. John says that he, uh, you know, he, was, he says this in order to fulfill the word that had been spoken. That is, that is a classic biblical setup for prophetic word. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. And he just, Jesus just said that himself in the Last Supper. It's seven, in chapter 17, he's praying while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. They have not, one of them has been lost. What that tells us is that we can have confidence that God will protect us in this life. Oftentimes, that means he will protect us from calamity like this, right? I mean, I pray to... <laughs> a lot of cars in the back of the police car. God, let me out of this one, and I swear I will never do it again. And a lot of those I got out. <laughs> Not all of them. The ones he kept me in the police car were actually the best things that he ever did for me. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> but we, there's a certain sense when we know God is protecting us in a sense, right? I had, so here's a story. I, when I was 19, I bought a motorcycle was riding it before helmet laws, riding it all over town, like, you know, and not smartly. I had a cousin, my cousin Christy, she was a Christian. She said, she came over one day with a helmet. And she's like, I, God spoke to me and said, I needed to buy you a helmet and bring it to you. I know this is weird, but here I am. I didn't want to not do it. So I was like, oh, okay, I was not a Christian, obviously. Put the helmet in my, in my, in my room, didn't think about it. One day, out of the blue, no good reason, I thought to myself, oh, I'll try the helmet out for a day. I put the helmet on. I drive out the house. I'm going by the high school, trying to impress everybody coming out from school, starting to a wheelie, and a Mercedes-Benz pulls out right in between these two buses. I hit at about 55, 60 miles an hour, T-boned it, and literally shoved my head through the safety glass of the front windshield popped back out, did a flip, and landed on my feet. (laughs) What just happened? Coincidence? Maybe. Maybe. But you know what? I got a lot of stories like that. 
And you know what else? I got, there's a lot of stories like that that I don't even know about where God protected me. Amen? And so we can know, we can have confidence that God will protect us from certain calamities, but then we also, that brings the other side of the coin that uh, we can also, and the other side of the coin is this, that it's a harder truth. We can also have confidence that the calamity we see is the calamity he allows. Even we would be so bold as to say the calamity that he ordains for our good. Always, 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 always for our good. Um, I mean, how many, you know, how many of you came you know, to salvation because you were winning in life, you know? How many things can we talk about where calamity literally brought us to our knees or brought us to our senses, brought us to a sense of humility and brought us to the point where we were able to say, I need God. All the time. Sometimes we can connect the dots, sometimes we can't, right? Sometimes bad things happen and we've got no there's no, there's no dot connecting. It's just mystery. This is bad. I can't see anything good coming out of this, and I have no idea what to do with it other than to say, I know God is good protecting me from calamity. I can see for in experience that so much of the calamity that I've really faced has been for my good and for my blessing. I can see the calamity of the cross and how it produced the greatest blessing ever, and I can then back up and say, well, if God is responsible for this, enough for me to blame him for it, he also has wisdom and knowledge that I don't possess, and therefore, it's, it, it's becoming on me to give him the benefit of the doubt. Is he good? Is he trustworthy? Yes. Proven over and over and over again. So if I can't connect the dots, I say, I can't connect the dots, but I understand that God is good, and someday, in, when we're all in heaven together, Maybe I'll understand it then. But I know that God is good. A bigger truth, bigger, bigger truth is this. Now we've been talking in the, ten, in the sense of temporal life. God is protecting us from calamity in life. Uh, God promises to protect us. Uh, God promises to ordain those things that are, you know, the hardship that's good for us. But this goes far beyond that. This is, these these things that Jesus is doing that the Holy Spirit is recording and, and giving to us, these aren't just tricks. This isn't just power that God is manifesting to say, wow, look at how powerful I am. These are not parlor tricks. These are things that are presenting to our view supernatural reality, supernatural truth. And the bigger thing, the bigger thing that this is trying to tell us is not just that God will protect us in this life, but Jesus is saying that he will never lose his own. Ever. He says almost, almost synonymous to what he said in verse 17 about not one being lost is in uh, chapter 10. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This promise isn't just about now. This is an eternal promise that goes all the way into eternal life. Jesus will never lose 
any of you that belong to him. And this is where we see it. God's promise. And if that's true, and it is, what that ultimately means is point three. That we can offer our lives in service of the gospel. Point one was the power of God. Point two was the power of God always protects us. Point three now is because of those things, we can offer our lives in service of the gospel. Look at verses 10 and 12. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear because he missed. (laughs) He's trying to cut off his head. And the servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? And so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. In the end, at the end of this, John, Holy Spirit, after giving us this brief glimpse of the power and the glory, he's, he gives us a contrast between Jesus and Peter, Peter and Jesus. A contrast between the wrong way and the right way for us to act in response to the power that we now know we have behind us. Peter, on the one hand, Peter sees the glory, the power, and he strikes out in self-serving violence. Poor Peter. Man, Peter's having a hard day. Uh, Even up to this point, we see that even all the way until Pentecost, actually, the disciples are still in this mindset about the kingdom of God coming in political conquest. And so, you know, Peter sees the power. He's like, you know... He sees the Roman cohort hit the deck. He's like, it's on. I mean, can you, Matt, can you, can you feel it? Would you be tempted to think that? Let's do this. And he thinks, we're, this is it. We're taking the kingdom. We're going to be kings. We're going to be, and he takes out his sword. Pow! Also remember that Jesus has just told Peter that he's going to deny him three times. And so Jesus, in the spirit of the moment, sees this, I'm sure, as a way of vindicating himself. Oh, yeah? How about this? Pow! But at the end of the day, ultimately, what Peter sees in this exercise of power is a cue to attack, to dominate, to oppress, to take for his selfish ends. And that tells, that teaches us that teaches us something. And, and the hard thing that this teaches us is, um, unfortunately, so uh, Christian culturally acceptable that it's hard to even apply the meaning for us because a lot of people will just be offended. And the question this puts to us is this. When we are attacked, when our political power is threatened, when our social status is threatened, when our reputations in the world are threatened, when our social values are threatened, how do we respond? Do we strike with the sword? Do we try to vindicate ourselves? Do we fight with all the political power at our disposal against them? 
it's so culturally acceptable to do that that it's, it, it takes a minute to think about it and say, oh, shoot, that's what we're doing. And if we do that, and we do do that, what message does that give the world? What message does it tell the world when we fight and scratch for every little inch of political power and social, uh, cultural uh, prominence? It says, can we at the same time say we really believe in the eternal life in the world to come? If we're so intent on keeping this little ball of dirt for ourselves? Is that the message we give? We don't really believe the eternal life to come because we're, we're totally ready to destroy you to keep, our, to keep ours. What message do we give than to say that Christianity is more about keeping the law when all we talk about is what we're against and how to stop people from doing what we're against? Rather than um, I, we are called to be gospel messengers. You know, first thing Jesus does when Peter does that, he, he heals the guy. Can you imagine that guy's face? I mean, can you imagine that moment, in that, that brief, transcendent moment, his ear has just been chopped off, he's almost been killed, and Jesus, I'm sure, leans down and, right in, in his face and makes him whole, And then Jesus presents the contrast. Jesus in ultimate power. Jesus who has just demonstrated what is up at an eternal level. He heals Malchus's ear. He tells Peter, put that thing away. Uh, how, am I not to drink the cup the Father's given me? And then he hands himself over, and puts his hands out and says... I willingly sacrifice myself for you. You know, if that was an Italian, the Italian cohort, and if a centurion did the binding, I always wonder about who that might have been. We don't know. But Jesus was giving himself over just as much for those Roman soldiers as he was for us, for his disciples for everybody else, and that teaches us something important. What is he doing? He's handing himself over to drink of the cup of wrath, the cup that he talks about, the cup that the Father's giving him. That's the same cup from the Garden of Gethsemane where he's begging the Father, do I have to drink this cup? Is there any other way to do it? The cup he's talking about is the cup that is prominently displayed throughout the Psalms as the cup of God's coming wrath. Here's its first appearance. Jesus picks up the cup of wrath first before anyone else. There will be a day in the future when this cup will be poured out over all the earth. But the first one to take a drink out of it and to finish it to the dregs was Jesus. Why? What is that symbolic of? Of the cross. He's handing himself over to the cross so that the wrath of God 
the full wrath of God for our sins would be poured out upon him. He would satisfy cosmic justice so that for us, we never have to drink that cup. We get another cup. We get a different cup. We get the cup of blessing. The cup of blessing which we bless is a participation in the blood of Christ. Take, drink, remember, and believe that the blood of our Lord Jesus was shed, the righteous for the unrighteous, for a complete remission of our sins. We get this cup because Jesus voluntarily handed himself over and he teaches us to do the same. Not that we can do what Jesus did. Only Jesus could satisfy divine justice as the perfect sinless sacrifice. But in light of that, knowing what we have received, knowing that we have the power of God behind us, knowing that God will absolutely protect us means that we can relax and stop fighting for things in this life and start dedicating our entire life towards the service of the gospel. So concluding all this, what this means is, you know, is this. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What that tells us is that we are heirs, the new kingdom. We have eternal life. We possess it now. No one can take it from us. No one can snatch it, us, out of Jesus' hands. Uh, Jesus promises to use all that divine power to keep us. And so we don't have to fight for cultural dominance. We don't have to fight for our reputation. We don't have to fight anybody. Instead, what we are to do is to be the church, which means we offer ourselves up in sacrificial service to the people around us. We offer ourselves up as sacrificial servants to bless the gay and lesbian community around us, to the homeless community around us, to the business community downtown, to the music community, to the arts. We act in vocational mission where we are wherever we are, and when someone asks us for something, we give them twice as much as they asked for. If someone tries to take something from us, we give them twice as much as they tried to take. We be proactive in how we serve, seeing the, we try to be proactive trying to see the needs around us and meet them before we're even asked. And in that, especially if it costs us something, the impression of the church becomes what Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 5, that they will see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven. Is that how people see the church now? The evangelical church, is that how people see us? It is, it is not. And so what Jesus says to us, big takeaway, is this. Put your sword in your sheath, Christian, and drink the cup, come what may. And in that, we can know that the power of God and his protection are around us, that nothing happens to us outside of his ordained will, and we can have great confidence that we might see amazing things come through that. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again, the beauty of it, the challenge of it. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and for showing us what he's done for us. Lord, we are most 99% of the time so scattered and distracted that we don't even think about the fact that we are... uh, we were under the penalty of, of death, of spiritual, eternal death. But that Jesus has rescued that from us and given us an, a portion in the inheritance, his own inheritance, which is the new heavens and the new earth and a coming world of beauty and light beyond our wildest imaginations. Lord, we pray that you would help us to not be foolish to not clamor after things like the world does, but instead to be simple, live simple, quiet lives, to love one another and to seek to love those around us, to be constantly in prayer and to consecrate ourselves to your work. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us to see a thousand people come to faith in your name through this church and through its ministry and that you would be so glorified in heaven that even unbelievers would say, that is beautiful. Even if I don't agree with everything they believe, that is beautiful. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to drink the cup, come what may, and trust you to work in and through us. We thank you for the cup of blessing which we are about to receive, what it means for us. And Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as we approach the table, we approach the table, let us now all sing together the doxology, which reminds us that God is the giver of all good things.